America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. In today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on international organizations and their role in the global political system. Our guest, Stefan D. Mistura, is a 40-year veteran of the United Nations. The Swedish-Italian polyglot and diplomat served as the special representative of the UN Secretary General in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and later United Nations Special Envoy for Syria. He was Italy's Deputy Foreign Minister from 2012 to 2014. He has also held senior political and humanitarian assignments in Lebanon and Iraq, and acted as Deputy Executive Director of the World Food Programme. Today's international intergovernmental organizations originated after World War I. In January 1920, the Allied powers established the well-intentioned but flawed League of Nations. The League did not accurately represent the world's balance of power, and the need to seek unanimity before any decisions could be made hobbled its decision-making. Most importantly, despite the fact that President Woodrow Wilson championed the League's creation and authored the 14 points used for the negotiations that ended the war, the United States never officially joined the organization and the Soviet Union gained membership status nearly 15 years after the organization's conception. The League fell apart when Germany, Italy, and Japan left the organization at the start of World War II. In 1944, the United States and the United Kingdom, with support from other eventual members of the Security Council's P5, the Soviet Union, France, and China, laid the groundwork for what would become the United Nations. By 1945, 50 nations signed on to the UN Charter. The initial mission to maintain international peace and security quickly expanded into a variety of agencies, focusing on health, migration, climate, and culture. Early accomplishments include eradicating smallpox, protecting heritage sites, and developing groundbreaking treaties, such as the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. More recently, the United Nations work to accomplish Millennium Development Goals lifted more than one billion people out of poverty. Peacekeeping and disarmament efforts are further functions of the United Nations. Mr. DeMistura's work in the Middle East on behalf of the UN is representative of the widespread peacekeeping operations carried out by international organizations. The United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan supports efforts to build political cohesion, promotes the organization of elections, and advocates for human rights in Afghanistan following decades of war. In Syria and Iraq, the United Nations has made efforts to protect and support refugees and hospitals, support political processes domestically, advocate for legal reform, and facilitate dialogue with neighboring countries. 
Today, many citizens in democratic countries are skeptical about international organizations' effectiveness or view them as a threat to their sovereignty. While the successes of the UN are noteworthy, international organizations are sometimes subverted by member states and suffer from bureaucratic burdens. The UN Human Rights Council, for example, has entrusted the oversight of human rights to representatives from countries who violate them most flagrantly. Reforms aimed at streamlining organizations often create more bureaucratic hurdles. Moreover, lack of enforcement mechanisms leaves international organizations relatively powerless when states do not abide by resolutions or provide adequate transparency concerning collective action problems such as biothreats and climate change. The recent SARS-CoV-2 pandemic illustrates how these organizations can be turned against their purpose. We welcome Mr. De Mistura today in the face of growing collective action challenges a United States wary of its financial obligations and what some Americans perceive as an unfair burden of promoting collective security. Ambassador DiMastora, welcome to Battlegrounds. I would like to begin by telling you what a pleasure it was to work with you and serve with you under always difficult conditions from Iraq to Afghanistan to Washington, where I last met you as we were discussing really this, the, the tragedy, the great tragedy of, of the devastating civil war in, in Syria. Thank you for joining me for what I know, based on your wisdom and experience, will be an enlightening conversation. Thank you. I'm delighted to be again with you, General, because we have had many experiences together, and every time I found it very constructive. Well, I, I did as well, and I hope you know how much respect I have for you and, and your, real, your really persistence in, in, in taking on some of the most difficult challenges that we face, challenges that have tremendous political and, and especially humanitarian ramifications. So I, I thought what we, what we might do is start with the last conversation that we had, which, as I recall, was after a walk in, on the South Lawn of the White House, and we sat in the Rose Garden, and it was a, it was a beautiful setting for a discussion about a really, a really a difficult situation, a horrible situation in Syria, and and these these mass episodes of or episodes of, of mass homicide that are really the, you know, the, the Syrian civil war, a, a war that has has been devastating for the Syrian people, with half the population dead, wounded, or or, or displaced, and of course you worked very hard from 2014 to 2018 to bring an end to that war, and I, as I remember our conversation, it was largely about. How do we use what we're doing militarily, especially in a campaign against against ISIS, to, to help provide leverage, leverage toward a, an enduring political settlement and an end of the of the civil war? And I thought I wondered if you might share with us your view of the evolution of that conflict so our viewers can understand it better. And then also your assessment of what are the prospects now as your successor takes on this very difficult mission of of, of trying to. Uh, determine and, and get parties to sign up for an end of that conflict. Thank you, General. I will. It's such a long conflict, ten years, and uh, being uh, also so complicated that uh, it's not easy to summarize it. So I'll try to be like a military would do, very synthetic on that. First, these conflicts are three circles. It started with a small local circle. 
a revolt by the people, like in the Arab Spring, like we had in many places, from Tunisia to Egypt to Libya. And secondly, it became reacted from the government with great violence, strong violence, horrific violence, that produced a second circle, a regional involvement, very much so. Perhaps they were involved even at the very beginning, but not militarily. That started becoming already complicated. And then we had a global involvement. Russian Federation, Iran was already involved. They, the Iran called in the Hezbollah. The US got involved. There are many allies who did the same on the other side. Conclusion, I counted 15 countries involved in one form or another in Syria. Second, currently there are six armies and big armies, important countries' armies. Turkey, Iran, US, Russia, Israel by air, plus the local army, the government army, and the Kurdish the fighters, plus still Daesh, just to mention some. Then you have warlords as well because of this conflict. So you can see how complicated it became. There were also three factors that complicated or anyway were game changers. One was the Russian military intervention. We may like it or not, but it was a game changer in terms of a military outcome. Second was the refugee crisis, which made Europe completely devastated in terms of political turmoil due to the arrival of so many refugees. And the third one was the Daesh, sending their own horrible people bombing all over the world from San Bernardino to San Petersburg, from Stockholm to Australia, Canada, Germany, Paris, Brussels, Tunisia, Istanbul. So where are we today? Well, the war has gone much slower, luckily. We are having ceasefires, which are lasting for a while. And the country, however, is divided in three areas. So this is not a victory for Mr. Assad, and it's not yet a peace. To get to peace, you need a political process. I know this is a mantra. We say it all the time. And truly enough, all this has been achieved in one way or the other. I say, sadly, through military activities, which have produced so many victims, especially among the Syrians. But now, if you want to reconstruct Syria, you need a political process. Why? Because Russia doesn't have the money. And you know the old saying of Colin Powell, you, you break it, you own it. Iran doesn't have the money, neither Turkey, of course. So the only ones who could do something are those who got so many refugees that they are keen in having them returning back. And this is Europe. But Europe will not move unless there is a credible political process. Bottom line, Assad, although he believes he won the war, which is not true because there are still three areas separated in Syria, if he wants stability, he can only obtain it by playing ball with the current political process, which means constitution, new or reformed, and elections, credible elections under UN supervision. Otherwise, sadly, we will have a no peace, no war, and the Syrians deserve much better. 
Well, Ambassador, you're describing, I think, uh, obviously the complexity of the situation. And oftentimes when Americans look at the Middle East, they see it mainly as a mess to be avoided. But I think what we've what we've learned is that problems that start in the Middle East don't stay there. You mentioned already the destabilizing effect on countries in the region and in Europe. And of course, the nature of this war, the fact that it is in large measure a sectarian civil war, empowers both Iran across the region, who is endeavoring to put a proxy army on the border of, of Israel. And it also, of course, empowers these Salafi jihadist terrorist organizations who, because Sunni communities in, in Syria and in the region feel beleaguered, can portray themselves as patrons and, and protectors of, the, of those Sunni communities and gain a degree of, of popular support. So I would argue that the, the stakes are very high. But as you mentioned, we do have leverage. We have leverage in connection with the territory that we and our partner forces control in the eastern part of the country, which happens to, by the way, coincide with a large percentage of the oil reserves of Syria, what's, what the Russians and, and Assad would need to reconstruct the country. And we have the power of not writing a check to reconstruct the country until there is the political process in place that you envisioned, a political process in which all Syrians right, would have a say in how they would be governed and how they would get out of this horror of the civil war. So could you, could you maybe spend a little bit of time just talking about, uh, about how you would see a political settlement evolving and how we could use the leverage that we do have? I mean, not enough to, give, to, to get us to a simple solution, but what would you recommend a U.S. policy be uh, toward the Syrian civil war and, and to support, not to determine because we can't do that, but to support a resolution of, of the conflict? You see, I'm just, while you were elaborating very, very accurately about uh, what has been the developments, I was thinking about one big issue which has been pending in history and will be one day judged. Uh, it's a little bit premature to do so, which is the famous red line you remember. Yeah. Would that have made a difference? Well, I've been thinking about it. Truly, at that time, probably militarily, it would have made a difference because the Syria was not ready to actually sustain that type of attack. Secondly, Russia was not yet engaged. And the proof is that at that time, the Syrian government people, particularly the family in charge of the government, were quite worried. We all know it. But then you have the other side of the coin. We are getting closer to the end of the Obama uh, the, uh, the tenure. And uh, did they really want to get involved in an other Middle Eastern conflict? Because you never know. One airplane, suddenly a pilot is caught. Then you have to send the Marines. And the things go into another direction. B, who takes the place of Assad? Al-Nusra? who were the most active fighters on the opposition, but happened to be Al-Qaeda. Big dilemma, you see? So when making a judgment, I've been thinking is not easy regarding red line. Now, regarding the future, having learned that uh, it's not easy to draw a magic formula, so to speak, I think the best example I have to use is when John Kerry and Lavrov in 2016 in Geneva with my own involvement into it, frankly, because um, my job was to reduce the pain. Their job was, if they could, to stop the fighting. I don't have soldiers to stop the fighting. They have the military capacity of doing it. And they came to an agreement, which I liked. Maybe 
we will know whether it would have worked or not if it did work, but it didn't. But I liked it. You know what it was? Grounding the Syrian Air Force and they should have been not flying anymore. That means no airplanes, no helicopters, not that horrible barrel bombs. On the other hand, Al-Nusra, which is Al-Qaeda, let's be frank, they call themselves Al-Qaeda, would have been then identified and separated from the rest of the moderate opposition and hit both by the US and Russia because Al-Qaeda is Al-Qaeda. And then UN would have bringing in a lot of convoys, which were desperately needed. It didn't work out because two events took place, which then spoiled the whole atmosphere. And probably some didn't want that to happen. Certainly not Mr. Assad because he felt the war could have been won and it was premature to take away the only asset he had to win the war at the time from his side, which was Air Force. Conclusion, Aleppo, then battle started and we got into a completely different game. But why I'm telling you all this inside story is because um, I believe still now, and probably with the new US administration, especially with people like Tony Blinken, who is very familiar and I respect him a lot, and uh, John Kerry still being in the administration and remembering what he tried to do, one formula is to talk with the Russians. They cannot afford to end up with babysitting a ruined country forever. I remember they were very hesitant about the idea of getting stuck, like all of us did in Afghanistan, or perhaps to a certain degree in Iraq. And they don't have the means to do so. But there is a need for talking. Why? Because if the Russians get, in a way, engaged by the US, using strong arguments, of course, you know, that's negotiations, it's not just diplomacy, then the others may understand, and particularly Mr. Assad, that there is a need for a formula in which he has to give. He won perhaps some territory, but he still needs to provide some inclusion of those who were excluded. Otherwise, there will be no outcome. You know, Stop, and I, I, I agree that we have to get to some sort of political settlement, but I'm very skeptical about our ability to do it unless there's more pressure on Russia. And oftentimes in, in my conversations with our friends in, in the region, the Saudi Arabians and, 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 and leadership and, and, uh, and the Emiratis and others, I would ask them, why are you not imposing more costs on Russia? Because it's Russia that is enabling Iran uh, in the context of the Syrian civil war in a way that, is the, that threatens your, your countries. And of course, the, the, the response I often got is, well, we have to hedge our bets, right? We think that America is going to disengage like it did uh, during the Obama administration with the unenforced red line. And an unenforced red line, of course, is what empowered Russia, what allowed Russia to intervene uh, in, in the civil war to, to begin with. But do you see any prospect for increasing international pressure on Russia for enabling uh, the, this humanitarian catastrophe? Uh, because I, I think Russia you know, isn't strong enough to build anything. They're only strong enough to destroy. And I think it's the use of this destructive capability that is allowing Putin to, in his mind anyway, restore Russia to national greatness and to have a role uh, in, in the Middle East. Well, but you see, I am convinced that they also, having seen them and met them many times, 
they don't want to get stuck in Syria. One thing is winning a war. And don't we see that it was easy in Iraq, by the way, you remember. And it was easy even for the US and NATO in Afghanistan. But then uh, the follow-up requires stamina, financial engagement, $1 trillion, and a lot of problems. So I'm convinced, perhaps I'm wrong, but if I'm wrong, I want to be proven wrong, that uh, by having a, a very articulated negotiation discussion and engagement by the US and its allies with the Russians about uh, the danger of them getting stuck with a broken country, broken country, look at the economy today, look at the situation, who is going to build up a country which has been destroyed to that level, has a chance. We should try. The alternative is military involvement, which I exclude. And you know, by now, even the Syrians don't want any more, any military, uh, major battle in Syria. Right. So, you know, this, this all, all goes back to uh, 2003 and the invasion of Iraq. And then, and then our, our meeting there as you courageously brought the UN back to Baghdad after that devastating attack mm. that killed your friend and, and colleague and uh, and, and, and drove the, the UN out of the country and the nascent stages of, of an insurgency, an insurgency that, that grew and coalesced o o over time. And, and we met really kind of at the height of that insurgency in, in 2005. And, uh, and, and it was a desperate situation. It was a situation, though, that, that after the surge in, in Iraq was much better, much better for the Iraqi people, much better for our interests in the region. But then again, of course, I, I think Americans were, were tired of military involvement in, in, uh, in Iraq, obviously. And it was the Obama administration that, that was adamant about disengaging from the war and saw that disengagement as an unmitigated good. And of course, our disengagement interacted right with the growing intensity of the Syrian civil war and then the rise of ISIS, the most destructive terrorist organization and brutal terrorist organization in, in, in history, uh, an organization that, that was by... 2014 in, in control of territory the size of, of Britain. And I just wonder if you might share with us really what, how, your view of what I think were, 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 were the twin mistakes in Iraq, uh, which was in the, inter the intervention in 2003, right, to, to unseat Saddam, but really an, an intervention under the assumption that it was going to be easy. I think that was the biggest, the, the, the biggest flaw. Uh, and, and, then, and then, of course, the, the period of the growing in insurgency and, and the intensification of the war, the surge and a, and a temporary successful aftermath, but then disengagement that led to the rise of, of ISIS. And I think the second mistake was that not only military disengagement from Iraq, but diplomatic disengagement in that period of time uh, that helped set conditions for the rise of ISIS. How do you view the Iraq war and, and what, what, what is your memory of it? Uh, and, then, and then also, what, what are your prospects? What do, what, what do you think the prospects are for the future of Iraq? Well, you make me go back to many very difficult thoughts because it was such a dilemma all the time of what would have been the best formula. By the way, I've been reading recently the book of Phil, Phil Gordon. You must have seen the, you know, losing the long haul. In a way, it's a very good analysis and honest analysis done by an American, therefore, I would say, unbiased, regarding how well one should plan not only the war, but a follow-up to the war if you want to make a difference. If you want to make a change, and that's the issue, 
bringing democracy, then you have to find the right glue. Because again, when you break it, you own it, and you have to find the right glue. And one of the glues is, if it's not militarily, must be political engagement. Now, let me give an example. I was thinking, you, I'm sure you're familiar, because in the, um, um, there was a, a sort of theory called the butterfly effect. Butterfly effect was a gentleman who came up with Lawrence with the idea that um, an environment, and I'm bringing into geopolitical environment, in the environment that a little butterfly in London with its wings, when they move the wings very frantically, it may produce a series of consequences, unwanted, unpredictable consequences, gradually, by paradox, a storm in Nairobi. Well, Let's move the butterfly to Iraq now and look at it geopolitically. And I know it's going to ring a bell to you. Do you remember when in Ambar there was this big revolt of the local Sunni tribes, which were infiltrated at a certain point by a horrible guy called Al-Zarqawi. He was Al-Qaeda, but the worst of, if you can say so, Al-Qaeda, to the point that even Al-Qaeda was finding him excessive. Well, the... David Petrios, who you and I respect a lot, came up with uh, this idea of the surge and of the Sahwa, which then engaged so many of the local tribes to actually fight Al-Qaeda, who is a foreign invader in his own way or infiltrator. It worked. But then, next wing of the butterfly, we all worked on the prime minister of the time, Al-Maliki, to actually then engage the Sahwa, make them policemen, pay them a salary. They can be part of the army. They can be in fire brigade, but they should not be just abandoned and ignored out of fear. And the next wing of the fly of the butterfly was, he did. And since the US was politically disengaging, then they had, didn't have enough pressure or political pressure to actually impose on Maliki to do that. And the next butterfly movement was that horrible event in Mosul with another person called al-Baghdadi. And then a country as large as UK, from Mosul to Raqqa, up to Kobane, near the border. Next fly movement of the butterfly, you have then the complication of Daesh coming all over the world, refugees moving, Syrian conflict getting, in, getting even more complicated, and Europe becoming destabilized. You see how many wings from one mistake, which was not a US mistake in the case, or perhaps if I may correct, the US mistake was to not get remain sufficiently engaged in order to be able to influence the right cause, which was inclusion. Otherwise, you offer a, on a silver plate opportunity to someone like al-Baghdadi to try to convince the Sunni tribes that they have been taken for a ride. No, I, you know, I I agree completely with your assessment, and and of course, uh, you know, I think that the early mistake was not to be prepared uh, to to get to a sustainable political outcome in Iraq through inclusion early and through early justice uh, justice delayed. You know, led to I think also uh, reinforced the, the the growth of this nascent insurgency and 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 the evolution of the conflict into a into a into a disastrous civil war. You know, I remember the the letter that Zarqawi wrote uh, in in March of 2004, very early, in which he said he wanted to apply the Afghan model 
to Iraq. And, and in this, what he meant by the Afghan model was he wanted to recreate the conditions of the Afghan civil war from 92 to 96, a civil war that empowered the Taliban and allowed the Taliban to establish the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. He wanted to do the same in Iraq and was, and was on a path to being quite successful in doing so during the disengagement prior to the surge. But I, I think you're absolutely right that then we compounded the early mistakes in the war by the, by the complete disengagement. And as you mentioned, what you're doing militarily is not important in and of itself. It's important because of what political influence that gives you to get to that outcome. And I think you're correct that Maliki unchecked imposed policies again that, that helped set conditions for the rise of, of, of ISIS. And, and I wonder if we might use this kind of sad story uh, to, to, to go to Afghanistan, where, where we next met. <laughs> we arrived around the same yeah. in, uh, in, in 2010. And, and again, it was a very desperate situation. It was a war from which we decided to disengage. And we're beginning to implement that disengagement. But of course, the enemy like ISIS did in Iraq, has a say in the future course of events. And the Taliban, as we know, had been regenerating mainly in Pakistan with the assistance of Al-Qaeda and the assistance of the Pakistani army's inner services intelligence, their, their intelligence arm. And, and, uh, and so as we arrived there, there was a kind of a mini surge go going on That's uh, right. in the early days of the Obama administration uh, and an effort to... To, to reduce some of the gains of the Taliban, but again, to try to get to a, a, a political settlement. Could you maybe describe your time there, your observations about the Afghan war? And then, and then maybe we'll, you know, we'll, we'll use that summary to discuss what's going on in Afghanistan and in South Asia now in connection with these Afghan talks now with the, with the Taliban. Well, uh, I was lucky enough, again, to be in the company of people I respect uh, and uh, I uh, knew well in Afghanistan was both David Petrius again and Ryan Cocker, who I met like you. And when I met you as well in Iraq, we ended up all in Afghanistan, each of us having our own agenda. I was trying to reduce the pain and uh, focusing on that. And uh, David Patel was trying to win the war, like a general should be doing, or at least to control uh, the insurgency and unify the NATO troops. And at the same time, let me make a comment on inside. And again, it's like the red line. There can be many theories on that. So I'm not going to be dogmatic, but just occurred to me. You see, we all were New Yorkers. I was very much a New Yorker when, uh, and I love New York and, and I've been living there. And when uh, sadly and horribly 9-11 took place. So there was no doubt. And can you imagine country like Sweden joined, who is not member of the NATO, joined inside that type of response to that horror. The doubt I'm having is why getting involved in Iraq then? Could we not have just finished the job in Afghanistan. At the end of the day, I was the one sent by the Secretary General to inspect the presidential sites in Iraq, and I didn't find anything. And we know that there was nothing at the end of the day. Saddam Hussein was a horrible person, no doubt. I met him twice. And I remember, I give you one example because we are in a friendly conversation and dialogue. I remember when I brought him a letter from the Secretary General to him regarding uh, the assistance to the Kurds and others, I kept this letter for one minute in front of him. 
and he didn't pick it up. And I kept it there and he didn't pick it up. And finally the interpreter took it and made a photocopy and gave it to him. He was so paranoid about being assassinated, even by a UN person who was carrying a letter, that that was his imprinting. So he was bad. But did we need to get there instead of focusing, finishing, and reinforcing what was the real place, Afghanistan? To a certain degree, our energies were diluted, including the UN, by the way. And uh, therefore, at a certain point, we saw what happened, that the Taliban's using the Pashtun feeling of being excluded and the corruption that they did could exploit, which was taking place in the country, started encroaching more and more in the countryside. And we are where we are at the moment. My job was to try to organize, which I did twice, elections, and then to try to bring aid to all the places where in fact there was peace. It worked to a certain degree because the Taliban went on. I had six of my colleagues killed in Mazari Sharif during a demonstration simply infiltrated by the Taliban. They were everywhere. Conclusion, where are we now? Well, everyone, dear general and friend, we have to admit it. The Afghans are tired of more than 40 years of war and now 10 years linked to the NATO intervention. They want to see no more war. We want the same. And so are the country, like the US. And I understand their position. I understand the people of US saying, why should we be spending a fortune? And we lost thousands of people, I think 2,000, sadly, and many other countries, including my own mother countries. But exit cannot be just um, capitulation. Exit cannot just be moving out. Good luck to all of you forget what we tried to do, we didn't do it completely. And now you are in the hands of the Taliban. Exit needs to be combined with some type of negotiating power, leverage, that one makes sure that the soldiers who died didn't die in vain. It was not only Bin Laden, it was also, for instance, the women. We were outraged, all of us, all over the world, including the US, the way they were treated and human rights. So leverage needs to be kept just when you're getting out. You know that very well as a military. When you do a retreat, you make sure that you're not leaving behind you a capitulation. You're having a tactical retreat. You have invested money and people. You want Afghanistan to be stabilized. That's why the negotiations which have been led, I must say effectively by Khalidad, no doubt, need to be complemented with some type of guarantees that the Taliban will not do like the Soviet did in Hungary or in Poland after the Second World War. Pretend to be part of a government and then take over. And the last but not least, the Afghan women. I feel very strongly because they are now teachers, professors, military, policemen, judges, and many of them politicians, because we pushed for them to be elected and to be kept there. Will they go back to just wear a burqa and stay at home and not be allowed to have education or jobs? That would be something that would be terribly sad. So I hope that um, we will be looking at um, this exit strategy in a more comprehensive 
sustainable, inclusive way. Doesn't mean a new war, just means leverage, pressure, threat of use if you play not ball. You know, Ambassador, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I think that war really is a contest of wills. And I, I think in many ways in Afghanistan, we've, de- we've defeated ourselves with uh, the endless war mantra. As you mentioned, Americans don't want to sustain massive troops and, and, and have a massive cost associated with a sustained effort in Afghanistan. But the level of commitment, as you know, was, was quite low. It was down to, I think, 8,000 soldiers and and a sustainable level of financial commitment. And, and it was a multinational commitment in which there were many more coalition soldiers at, at this point uh, outside of the, the U.S. Than, than U.S. soldiers there. And, and as you know, the Afghans have continued to take the brunt of the, the fight yes. to maintain the freedoms that they've enjoyed since 2001 and the end of Taliban rule. What concerns me the most, though, is that we have, we have manufactured uh, an enemy that we would prefer rather than the actual enemy that we're fighting in this assumption that there is this bold line between the Taliban and other jihadist terrorist organizations who want to commit mass murder in, in all of our countries, right? And, and are a grave threat to all humanity. And the other real element of self-delusion is, as you've already alluded to, that, 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 that somehow this new Taliban will impose a, a benevolent form of Sharia, which, of course, we know is not the case because they're in control of some parts of the country already where they've already destroyed schools and already subjected women to the, the same kind of, uh, of brutality and disenfranchisement. So I, I think that, that we have to have our eyes open about it. And, and I, I really think it was a disaster, you know, Ambassador, that, uh, that, that, that you know, our friend Zal Khalilzad, uh, you know, really made so many concessions uh, on the way out, essentially. By, but you know why? He had a deadline. He had a he deadline. Had a deadline, and it was an yeah. electoral deadline given to him. But the, yeah. that's not the way we actually make foreign policy. You have right. to think about the long term so that you don't leave uh, devastation afterwards. So I, I can understand. He might have had instructions, but they need to be sustainable. By the way, this is exactly why I was very concerned when there were so many changes of uh, declaration in Syria regarding, yes, we are staying, no, we are not staying, we are going out and so on, because in the negotiation, and I need them too, you need a leverage, you need some type of thing, well, the Americans have a position, so let's discuss about your position, rather than saying, well, they are leaving anyway. So that type of inconsistency, ping pong of declarations can be a, a not helpful. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think what, if, there's, if there's an element of the experience uh, between Afghanistan and Iraq that is, that is very similar, it's that in the taking of a short-term approach to these long-term problems, we actually complicated and lengthened those conflicts and, and made them more costly and, and more difficult for us and, 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 and everyone involved. I uh, in, in Afghanistan, what would your advice be to a new American administration uh, about, about what to do now? I, I'm concerned, obviously, that on the way out, we, you know, we forced our Afghan friends to, to, uh, to release 5,000 of some of the most heinous people on earth uh, in a way that empowered the Taliban. And now, you know, many Afghan 
friends who we know from our time together are sitting across the table from the Taliban and they're hearing from the Taliban, why are we even talking to you, right? We, we defeated the world's you know, greatest superpower. And yeah. so it's, it's a very difficult situation for a new American administration. What would be your advice? Well, who am I to give an advice? Because at the end of the day, you know, once you are in power, you always, and you know it once you were in the White House and I'm inside the UN headquarters, you have to take into account so many factors. But let's put it like this. I would advise to listen to the American people who are tired of the Afghan war and therefore not change the fact that there must be an end to this engagement. But then comes not at any cost, which means keeping a leverage militarily in order to make sure that the Taliban are not just saying the right things to the Americans, but actually doing the right things. For instance, not taking over Kabul suddenly once the Americans have gone, or not saying that they are going to change everything into a heavily Sharia type of law. B, convince the Europeans which the Americans and, and the Europeans are working together to finance development aid only if, for instance, women education is actually supported. Why I'm saying that? Well, first, because I strongly believe that when women are educated, they contribute to peace and they are 51% of the population and you have seen how many strong Afghan women are there. And B, because they are the thermometer whether the Afghans are serious or not. If they are serious, they, instead of their own true belief that women should be staying at home, will have to agree that in this new environment, the Afghan women should be able to go to higher education and to jobs. Then there would be contribution for reconstruction. And they cannot afford to lose the country because no one else will be able to sustain it for a long time. So they need the Europeans and the US, but with leverage. Ambassador, th thank you. And, you know, Ambassador, I I'd like to ask you a question about, about international organizations. You spent your whole life trying to build a better world for future generations, and you've done it, you've done it in, in, within uh, international organizations. I'm sure that you're aware that in the United States, there's a deep skepticism these days about the effectiveness of international organizations and the U.S. contribution to them. And are we getting enough out of our investment? And we've seen how some international organizations, usually the Human Rights Council is used as an example, most recently, obviously the World Health Organization, have been subverted by other countries and turned against their very purpose. So what would you say to Americans? What, what is the value of international organizations why should America remain engaged in them? And then, and then maybe a few words about the possibilities, but also the limitations associated with what international organizations can achieve. I spent 46 years in, with the UN. I was 23 when I started, believe it or not. And, and I've been in 21 conflicts all over the world. So I could see the limitations, the weakness, but also the strengths of the UN, not only the UN headquarters, you know, the big building, but the UN agencies. Look at WFP, World Food Program, by the way, led by an American, winning the Nobel Prize, feeding probably millions of people every day. That's why in Syria, we don't have famine. That's why in Syria, we didn't have epidemics because UNICEF was there. That's the UN as well. So I would take 
into account the fact that Americans may feel that uh, the UN is imperfect. And I would concur. In fact, the Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez said this time, at the 75, any person needs to start reviewing whether he or she could be improving or changing their own approach. There is a need for a change. And by the way, Security Council needs to change. Why? Because they are too divided. And when they are divided, they block everything. And that doesn't help the credibility of the UN. Now, costs. Well, one aircraft carrier, I think, costed to the U.S. 13 billion U.S. dollars, which is uh, certainly an important investment. The U.N. is costing, UN, uh, the U.N. U.N. is costing about 600 million a year, okay? 22% is the U.S. contribution. The WFP, 2.5 million, and they are doing a fantastic job. So we are not uh, 2.5 billion, eh? So we are not really too expensive, provided that the U.S. is engaged. When you complain and uh, the U.S. complains about other countries' influence, the best way to balance that and contribute to reduce that one or to equilibrate it is to get very influential. Because believe me or not, and I know how much the U.N. has got many failures, Rwanda, just to mention one, or Sebenica, or even Mogadishu. But um, without the U.N., would be able to address COVID globally, by the way? Can we address those crises that no country can or wants to be involved in alone, climate, poverty? or even legitimacy in finding a political solution to an ongoing conflict. Will it be one or two countries decide on that? Won't be any legitimacy. Conclusion, like Dagamashot used to say, the UN has not been created to bring the world to paradise, but to try to avoid it goes to hell. And I think 75 years have proven that it could have been much, much worse without the UN. That's has kept me going. Hey, well, well th thank you, Ambassador, and thank you for your, your long service. You know, I, 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 uh, I think you're absolutely right that there is no prize just for passive membership and paying your membership <laughs> dues, right? You have to, we have to compete uh, within, within international organizations because those are oftentimes, as you know better than anybody, competitive arenas uh, themselves. Well, I have, I, have, I have one last question for you, Staff, and I, I – uh, uh, of course, you know, America, as you've been seeing us this year and really the world is emerging from a number of crises, right? I would call it a, a quadruple crisis here in the United States of a pandemic, uh, or a recession associated with that pandemic. I'm sure you've witnessed the, the social divisions laid bare yes. by George Floyd's murder and concerns over inequality of, of, of opportunity or, or, uh, or uh, uh, unequal protection under, under the law. Uh, and now, of course, this very vitriolic political season that we just uh, we, we've just seen uh, in in during a presidential election. But you know, you've confronted some some very difficult circumstances across those forty six years. And and uh, you know, when I was thinking about our conversation, I thought that Saint Jude must be your patron saint because despite <laughs> this, despite uh, taking on all of these imp impossible causes, you've remained undaunted. So I wonder, maybe some some maybe life advice for all of us. You know how <laughs> how do you maintain your you know your optimism and and your and, and your the the vigor with which you're pursuing this this overall objective of trying to build a a better world for generations to come. 
Well, thank you. Thank you for this very, very nice question towards me. Um, first of all, I belong to a generation which survived and was able to become a, a true European, healthy and educated, thanks to the Marshall Plan and to the fact that the US got involved in the Second World War in the way that we were able to overcome a horrific situation. So we need the US all of us, the world, the UN, everyone. We need them engaged. And therefore, I, I just want to say, dear Americans, feel that you have a role which we all hope you will keep and maintain. We need it. Now, regarding myself, I wanted to be a doctor, HR. A medical doctor origin. Well, actually, when I was a child, I wanted to be a fireman, actually. That's, you know, like children do. But then my father convinced me that uh, why being a doctor? You speak many languages and you, you've got various nationalities in your. Why can't you be a doctor of countries? There are many sick countries. And the UN was the ideal doctor for trying, not always succeeding, I agree, but trying to actually uh, help those patients. And that has kept me going. I give you an example. Would a doctor, look at the heroic doctors you have in the US these days. Would a doctor abandon a patient simply because he or she cannot be treated? There is no cure, i.e. in our case, war, which goes on and on. Or would it actually say, no, I don't abandon the patient. I will reduce his or her pain. I would probably want to keep her or him alive, because tomorrow, perhaps tomorrow, after tomorrow, there will be a treatment, which could have been the collapse of a dictator in politics or a change of mind. And anyway, provide hope. That is what has kept me going. And even when I saw that uh, the disease was without any treatment, well, Stefan, I'll tell you, you, you provide all of us hope uh, through your example, uh, through your many contributions. Yeah, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, I can't thank you enough for joining us for this conversation. And I know that our listeners will benefit tremendously from the, the insights that, that you've provided to, to us. And, and I wish you all the best. This conversation reminded me of, of how much I miss you. And I hope to see you very soon <laughs> after we're through this, this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to you and the Hoover Institution. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.